Thank you. The category Best Supporting Actor might be a little misleading. In any role of every size, each actor supports every other actor in the cast. Through the dynamic characters they portrayed, five actors, each nominated for the first time, gave their strength and spirit to their fellow actors and gifted us with striking performances. For Best Actor in a Supporting Role, the nominees are James Cromwell in Babe. Ed Harris in Apollo 13. Brad Pitt in 12 Monkeys. Tim Roth in Rob Roy. Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects. is presented to hello there and welcome back to spro and lee take on the academy the best and most esteemed podcast for academy award do-overs i'm lee and i'm spro and our destiny is to rewrite oscar history one gold man at a time today we finally welcome back emily our very busy friend and lee's playful nemesis she's here to help us take the other oscar away from uncle bad touch spacey Yay, Emily. Yay. <laughs> when we first talked to you, you were prego. Second time, you were healing from thy birth. Third time, you had a kid. How are you now? Fucking prego again. <laughs> Stop. Listen, yeah. listen. How does this keep happening? Listen. <laughs> there are a series of decisions that I made. <laughs> with my significant other and uh and here we are again but yeah i have a kid and he's really great and we were like you know what let's go for another round we rolled the dice it went pretty well he's a likable bumbler that's like the best i can describe him he's like a likable little bumbler and is (laughs) super sweet and fun and we're like you know what let's do it you know there are chaos muppets and there are order muppets we definitely got an order Muppet with the first one, and this this is a chaos Muppet. This is like an animal. I think likable Bumbler would be a pretty great Twitter flair. But if I could ask you a question, and this is a question that only women who have given birth through cesarean section could answer. So is this is this the one that you're going to ask me to catch me off guard with? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> well, the, the question is. Obviously, this is not the preferred way to give birth. However, oh, okay, okay, all right, hold on. Is there a small part of women that have had cesarean sections who then talk with their friends and thank their lucky stars that their clown hole didn't get blown out? Oh, dude. Yes. Yes. Yes? Okay. okay. Are you kidding me? Like, If I had a clown hole, I would feel that way. I mean, one, I'm going to have to ask you to stop using the term clown hole because that is just a fucking (laughs) terrible- Doesn't even make sense. I mean, awful. Because like, I don't know, maybe it makes you think of like the clown's pie out of the car, you know? What? <laughs> yeah, no. I'm going to just shut you down right now on All that right, one. Okay. Can I- <laughs> Outside of that, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, because there is a lot of philosophy around childbirth, almost like cultist sort of like stuff around childbirth too, of like, it's the most natural thing in the world and it has to be the most natural thing in the world for some people. But other people like umbilical cord gets wrapped around a kid's foot two times. And so if we didn't have modern medical intervention, you all just would have died. Birth can be a very natural thing. And sometimes it's not. 
And what a miracle it is that we get to have these other options available and people can get through what they maybe couldn't at another time. But in regards to your question, thousand percent yes, because as much as I was not planning on getting like my entire torso cut open and like my abdominal muscles pushed to the side and organs moved around and like all that jazz, I had a pretty good recovery process thanks to painkillers. That's great. But also like I've had friends have horrible long-term issues from vaginal birth where they like had their tailbones broken. They've had like huge issues. And you know, you can totally have bad stuff happen during C-sections too. But when my doctor was like, so what do you think about the second one? I'm like, not a good on not having that experience. I thought if you gave cesarean the first time, then it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that you gave cesarean all the other times. Oh man, let me let you into something called the VBAC which is vaginal birth after C-section, which is really hot on all the Facebook groups of like, I really just want to do a VBAC. I know I had a cesarean once and I really think I can just do it. And it's like, oh, or you've got a higher, I mean, at least for my doctor was like, well, you've got a higher chance of your wounds, like old wounds, like ripping open. Like if you try to do that, I'm like, you know what? I'm good having a second C-section then. Yeah. Open me up like a coin person, take them out. Listen, I love my doctors. I love my hospital. I feel good about this situation. Now I hope you're not playing this in memorandum of me in like five months from now, now that I've said this, all this like stuff around how much happier I am to get a C-section. No, no, we would never force our podcast. Well, we wouldn't force our podcast on anyone, but we definitely wouldn't force our ideological beliefs regarding birth and or pregnancy. Oh, I will. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, I will. I will. So pro-life? Fuck the Supreme Court. You can go ahead and- Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. I was hinting at it and you just went ahead. Oh, you weren't sure? You weren't sure about my liberal agenda that I have had Uh since like infancy? No, I'm I'm 100% with you. So it is an agenda. (laughs) (laughs) You got me, man. You got me, bro. Well, it's nice to have you back. Always nice when the three of us can get together. So we're here to talk about Kevin Spacey and the usual suspects. Kevin Spacey again. And I thought it best to turn that over to Mr. Spro, who had an affinity for the man. Mm. I figured he could introduce this whole thing. (sighs) This isn't fun. There's no Oscar fun fact here because nothing is fun about this. Well, whoever Kaiser Sosa is, I can tell you he's going to get gloriously drunk tonight. (laughs) And that's a question that I'm often asked, who is Kaiser Sosa? And I've always been very cryptic about my answer, but tonight I'm going to tell you who Kaiser Sosa is for me. The person who pulls the strings, the person who manipulates, who hovers over us, who gives us life and breath. For me, Kaiser Soze is Brian Singer, the director of this film. And I thank him for his friendship and for giving me an extraordinary part and for making me a better actor than I ever thought I could be. I have dreamed of a moment like this my whole life. I thank my manager, Joanne, my agent, Brian Gersh, and on a personal note to my mother, I am so proud that you can be here tonight. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Mom, for driving me to those acting classes on Ventura Boulevard when I was 16. I told you they would pay off, and here's the pudding. Thank you. We're here to talk about Kevin Spacey's only other Oscar win, which was 1996 Best Actor in a supporting role for his role as Verbal Clint or Kaiser Sose in The Usual Suspects. When Kevin Spacey's name was announced as the winner of these awards, I actually jumped out of my seat and cheered. This was, I was 14 years old. I'm sure I watched the Academy Awards before this, but this award right here was the one that made me fall in love. I would go on to never miss a moment of the show and actually come up with a betting game on the awards that would have my family shut up during the awards so I could hear the acceptance speeches. This award is the reason we have a podcast today. But even I need to come to grips with the reality that Kevin Spacey, for as wonderful as I found his work to be, if the world was a fair place and the good one and the disreputable lived in gutters, Kevin Spacey should never have been awarded the parts that he got. The moment he laid his drunken body on a 14-year-old was the moment his life should have taken a different path. Away from some of my favorite films like Seven, like The Ref, like Swimming with Sharks, and Time to Kill, Glengarry Glen Ross, A Bug's Life, Baby Driver, up until House of Cards for Netflix. And I know we said we would separate the asshole from the art, but I struggle here because these roles would exist without Spacey. The roles could have made other celebrities. Not this role, though. Apparently, the role of verbal Kint was always intended to go to Kevin Spacey. But that was writer McQuarrie's suggestion or director, Brian Singer. I don't know. But it is odd as we talk about Kevin Spacey for this episode. I think we should also talk about Mr. Brian Singer. In the first Spacey episode, Emily talked about being a bartender in New York and hearing unsavory things about Spacey. I have secondhand knowledge from good, thicker-than-water sources about the predatory habits of Mr. Singer, specifically his unwanted attention toward young men. So, interesting that Spacey and Singer would find each other for The Usual Suspects. And damn it, I like this movie. It's fun to see Stephen Baldwin do something. Benicio Del Toro and Kevin Pollock sharing the screen. Gabriel Byrne has only been better in Stigmata, my opinion. This was a good script competently directed with a great ensemble. Just a shame you pay two groping pedophiles royalties to watch it. And usually in these stripping Oscars episodes, we go through the crimes, but we've already done that with Spacey. As of this recording in the summer, Spacey is facing the London courts on four counts of sexual assault against three men and another count of sexual penetration without consent. I don't know if that's just how the British word rape, but that sounds like rape to me. He strongly denies the charges and has since returned to acting, but we have a long memory here at Saltota, and it's about time we righted this final Spacey wrong. Now let's strip the Oscar away from this creep and ne'er utter his stupid name again. But before we do, Uh. I do have one other gripe. In November of 2021, Variety published an article entitled House of Cards producer win $31 million in arbitration against Kevin Spacey. They say they lost $30 million when they fired Spacey after the accusations came out when they had to scrap the work done on the final season of House of Cards lost revenue and all that. What I want to point out is that Netflix, and more specifically this production company, MRC, who could have looked at this whole situation as a blessing, because one, we've already talked about it, was an open secret that Kevin Spacey was a molester. No way did everybody on set once rap sung to the rafters went, oh my, there's a fox in our hen house. So there's that. They just went along with it because Spacey was Spacey and he didn't molest them all. And he was bringing in dollars and viewers. But imagine this. You have Robin Wright as a sociopathic, power-driven character who is one heartbeat away from the White House. You have Michael Gill playing Doug Stamper, who was a great blend of heartbreaking and menacing. 
you have six seasons where you are building it up to a fall of Frank Underwood and the rise of Claire Underwood. And the one thing you can look at in the way is Kevin Spacey's contract, which magically disintegrates itself and you failed to deliver in season six. And instead of blaming yourselves, your writing team, your producers for not being good enough to deliver for Robin Wright, you backhandedly insult her by blaming the fall of House of Cards on the fact you had to fire your contract and bless her. So fuck you. You're amazing, Robin Wright and Michael Gill and all the other players on House of Cards. I enjoyed your season in which they gave you the full 13. And now I'm ready to switch gears. My applause. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah to that. That being said, yeah, no, no, I got nothing. I got I got nothing that that Spro did not say just beautifully eloquently. Well, then let's stop fucking around and get into who else was nominated this year, starting with James Cromwell, who played Arthur Hoggett in Babe. Hi, my name is Jamie Cromwell. So I was offered this film called Babe about a pig and I got the script and I leafed through it and my character had about 16 lines. So I was going to turn it down. And I visited a friend of mine in, um, in Connecticut and he, he said, no, man, it's a free trip to Australia. And listen, if the picture fails, it's the pig's fault. You're just a supporter. So I thought, yeah, that's not too bad, no risk. So I went to do this film. I, I would go get made up every day. I would not pay attention to the look. I would be talking to the makeup lady because makeup ladies know every story that's going on. We got to the end of the film. It's the day of the of the sheep herding contest. So the next shot is I have to turn to the pig and congratulate the pig. And I look up to say the line. And I see my reflection in the lens. And what I see is not me. I see this older man who reminds me a great deal of my father. (laughs) And I have to say, That'll do, pig. That'll do. But what I hear in my head is, that'll do, Jamie. That'll do. Because this is the first time in my life that I've actually showed up on a set without my evaluations and my judgments and beating myself up and then projecting it outside and making a hash out of everything. I really showed up and said, look, no matter what happens to this little Australian film, I'm going to be here every day and I'm going to do the best that I can. And it works out. And my life changed and I owe it to a pig. And that's my best story ever. So the talking pig movie that made more money and garnered more accolades than maybe anyone anticipated was kind of like the coda of 1995. A real feel-good story, something the whole family can enjoy, and I love this movie dearly. For those that don't know, the story revolves around Babe the Pig, voiced by the late, great Christine Cavanaugh. Did you know that she was dead, by the way? No, but I can't believe you just compared Babe with Coda. That is fucking wild. Is it? Why is it so wild? Oh, movie about a pig and movie about someone who has deaf parents that are struggling in society. Like Kind of like the lead character wants to be one thing and there are other people telling her that, that they have to be something else. Uh, and it's a happy ending. Did you like Coda? I did like Coda. As best picture? Well, I absolutely agreed with best actor. And that was one of the most beautiful acceptance speeches mm-hmm. I've fucking ever seen. No, Better best than picture. Will Smith's? Sit Come down. Will Smith. Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, uh, best picture, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, I have. I'm just putting it down on the record. I've got complaints of comparing Coda with Babe, but also I thought that that definitely deserved best actor. So you don't compare deaf people to pigs like <laughs> Lee does. Is that what you're saying? I'm not comparing. <laughs> I'm comparing the lead character to a pig. <laughs> the deaf people are the other farm animals. <laughs> It's noted. I appreciate it. And frankly, I'm I'm quite surprised it took this long for you to disagree with me. But so the story revolves around Babe the Pig, voiced by the late great Christine Cavanaugh, also the voice of Chucky from Rugrats, and his dream to become a sheepdog pig. But the film becomes something more than Rudy in a barnyard when Babe and the soft-spoken farmer Hoggett, played by Cromwell, develop a tacit bond. The scene where Cromwell sings If I Had Words to an ailing animatronic pig is somehow the sweetest and corniest thing I've ever seen, especially when he begins dancing a jig. If you do a little research, it's easy to see this role meant a lot to Cromwell, and he plays it with his whole heart. It's incredibly underplayed performance for an extremely underwritten role, and Cromwell makes magic anyway, without a rabbit or a hat. And on a personal note, if I ever need a good happy cry, the final 10 minutes of Babe is on a short list of go-tos, sort of like a couple scenes from Coda. Shut really? up. We were going to talk about in a later episode, there are some award shows around the world that have best picture, but only for wholesome family entertainment. And I feel like this one is like one of the only times that the Academy Awards put up wholesome family entertainment as best picture. That's not done with you know cgi or animated by disney or pixar it fell flat the first time i watched it i was actually kind of dreading the rewatch i don't know whether i was charlotte's webbed out the first time that i saw babe or if i was just like oh i'm over these animal movies because i had just you know probably oversaturated my mind with the adventures of milo and otis which was one of my favorites growing up but don't research that one i was just gonna say (laughs) (laughs) why don't tell her she's pregnant she'll cry Let's just say there was a lot of Milo's and Otis's that didn't make it through the production. Are you fucking kidding me? No, they don't really have those laws in Japan. Oh, she's I tear typing. <laughs> don't do People it. also ask how many dogs died in the making of Milo and What? <laughs> Five drowned cats, four mauled cats, two cats pecked to death, one cat swallowed by a snake. What? Dudley Moore was still in character as Arthur, and he was fucking hammered. <laughs> and he's like, oh, they ate another cat. They let Otis die by the bear? I don't know if they so much let it, but they were like, we're getting great footage. <laughs> Keep rolling. But all claims are unfounded and should be considered a myth. Thank sure. you. That's what they Diane. say on Mill Wars, too. Yeah. Don't they eat dolphin sandwiches, too? They? Who's they? Don't cafeterias in Japan feed children like <laughs> dolphin sandwiches, according to Blackfish? I don't know how our friendship has survived for many years. <laughs> Do you have anything to say about Babe? Any movie with animals in it or like have animals as a main character should just straight up have a trigger warning at this point in our lives. It's like there's there's just it's too much unconditional emotional love and support. I liked Babe. I remember watching it and enjoying it. But this is one and I usually do my homework, but I didn't rewatch for this recording. And it's an easy one for me to have sort of written off. 
I'll kind of agree with you, Emily, on that front. Only like James Cromwell turns in an absolutely great performance sure. as the old farmer and everything like that. But when we're talking about getting an award, what in this movie did he do that just mesmerizes you? When we talk about all the people that were nominated and unnominated this year, there's not a whole lot. Like the spectrum is not that wide. But as far as this goes, like he turned in a heartwarming performance. He became all of our grandfathers, but I don't necessarily see it as something that stands the test of time, you know, because when people think Babe, they don't think James Cromwell. They think the cute ass pig. Of course course they do. They think of the final shot and probably the most quoted line of the 90s. That'll do, pig. But when you think of the usual suspects, you think of Kaiser Sosa, you think of Kevin Space. You know, like if we're wiping him off the slate, you got to like find that supporting actor that's like almost upstaging the leads. I wouldn't say James Cromwell is going to be on my mantle. No, not in, not in the company that he's in. All right. So next then would be Ed Harris, the one and only, playing white team flight director Gene Kranz in Apollo 13. On a list of under-recognized, under-appreciated actors, Ed Harris would be at or near the top of the list. The man's filmography is absolutely bulging, yet his performance in Apollo 13 was the first of only four career Oscar nominations. It's unconscionable. It should be twice that. The Right Stuff, The Abyss, State of Grace, The Rock, The Firm, Gone Baby Gone, The Way Back. The Lost Daughter, A Beautiful Mind, Stepmom, Just Cause, Glengarry Glenn Ross, Sweet Dreams. And don't forget, of course, Milk Money. <laughs> Remember that movie? <laughs> and nary, nary a nomination. Fortunately for Harris, though, I don't think he gives a fucking shit about awards. I don't think he gives a shit about too many things, except the craft. Anyway, Apollo 13. I saw this one in the theater, and I was absolutely convinced that Hanks was going to 3 P. And then I saw Leaving Las Vegas and Dead Men Walking. And I still kind of think maybe Sean Penn should have won that year. Nevertheless, Apollo 13 is probably Ron Howard's best film. Even he thinks so. It was nominated for nine Oscars. And with such a stacked cast, you might have expected the Academy to recognize more than just Kathleen Quinlan and Ed Harris with noms. Anyway, Harris plays white team flight director Gene Kranz, the man in the sparkling white vest, holding sway over mission control. And the one who delivers the second most iconic line in the film, failure is not an option, which according to the real life Gene Kranz was never actually uttered. But he did co-opt that line as the title for his 2000 autobiography. Anyway, Harris's performance, I mean, God, you could describe it using a multitude of adjectives, stoic, assertive, steady, focused, and on and on. But best of all, he's believable as the kind of person who deserves to be in charge. The one that you want driving the bus if the wheels fall off. He's got lots of great moments. I think my favorite, though, is during re-entry when comms are dark and all of Mission Control is waiting in silence for Lovell and his crew to say, hey, we're back, we made it. Behind Harris are two NASA higher-ups spewing worst-case scenario neghead bullshit, and one of them says this could be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. Harris turns around and with great restraint says, with all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. But the look he gives them as he says that, the look says, after everything that we've done to bring these men home, with all we have professionally and personally invested into preserving their lives, how dare you spew that doom and gloom bullshit in front of me and my team? Either shut the fuck up or I'm going to knock you the fuck out and throw your cream eating asses into the hallway. Right? Might it's too much? Too much. It's aggressive. Kind of aggressive. <laughs> a little aggressive. He makes me aggressive. Uh, you know, should watch the video when he was on, when he was promoting history of violence, where he's like, you know, I don't know. What is violence? Huh? What is this? And he like pounds on the table like three or four times. And he starts making that scary Ed Harris face. He takes a glass, a completely empty glass made of glass, a glass glass. <laughs> 
and just in like lightning quick motion, hucks it over his right shoulder while making this like terrifying face and it shatters on the wall. He's like, huh? What's that? Is that violence? He did this in an interview? It looks like it's at a, a film festival. He's up uh. he's sitting at like the table with the like drape over the front of it. It's terrifying. But this performance in Apollo 13 of Harris's has become so iconic that when we think of Harris, this is probably top three performances of his that we think of. Whatever you guys got on these power procedures. Gene, they're already. No, I don't want the whole damn Bible. Just give me a couple chapters. We gotta get something up to these guys. They're working on it now. I'll call over to the simulator and get an estimate. God damn it! I don't want another estimate. I want the procedures now. Ed Harris is one of those, like his eyes, his like steely blue eyes and everything like that. Like he's probably the scariest man that I, that I want to hug me as a father figure. (laughs) (laughs) So this was the second film that I watched for this episode. And mainly because you posted on our Google share drive, the clip that you're talking about with the steely look that he gives to the NASA elite behind him. And I watched that clip and then I was like, fuck, I got to watch this movie. One, let's just give Ron Howard his due props. Apollo 13 is, just a hell of a film and it's such a great rewatch for any of our audience members that are like man I haven't seen that in ages and then Ed Harris with these roles that he turns in like the Truman Show like the Abyss the Rock anytime he does these roles where he is kind of the voice of reason or the man in control it's just so easy to believe him and i'm going to be completely honest here when you say that he's underappreciated underrecognized i never go to see a film because ed harris is in it but i love ed harris and i love every single film that he shows up in and it's just weird that i don't get drawn to his films there is something about ed harris that i also find universally there is a magnetism to him and I don't know if it's just because of that archetypal stoic dad thing he's got going on and I'll say this on my rewatch of this I found it had been kind of ruined for me because I am through the thick of the third season of For All Mankind I don't know if any of you have watched the series on Apple Plus no I didn't even heard of it no, you don't. You don't. You don't watch TV. You're you're too no, good for TV. Oh boy! <laughs> for all mankind is an alternate history uh, series about if the U.S. wasn't the first to land on the moon, and so the space race kept going. And let me tell you, it is so good. Like it is so well done. I was annoyed to like it as much as I do, but there are so many scenarios that I've been through with these three seasons of very intense television that it's um, watching Apollo thirteen are re-watching it. It was like, okay, this is really well done. This is really cool. I'm really interested in this, but I'm more involved in the characters in For All Mankind than I am in Ed Harris's character. So, I don't know. There's also a part of me that says any actor worth their weight can play a stoic character to the level that Ed Harris played this character. I mean, all in all, of course, it's a great film. The writing is spectacular. The performances are excellent. And you care. You care like crazy about what's going on. But yeah, it, it just, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me as much as the television show that has a crisis in space every week. I can get that. I mean, I still enjoy going back to watch Night of the Living Dead, but it's very primitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I can still appreciate it and I can still appreciate the style and tone of this movie versus For All Mankind, but it doesn't do character as well, which I could argue that a lot of films don't do character as well as television <laughs> because you don't get as many hours with that person to be able to like actually like connect. 
Which is why it's harder to make a film than it is to make TV. But go ahead. Oh, <laughs> I'm oh. sorry. Did you did you have an opinion on making television? Adam, oh, that you did you? I will pull back the curtain hope or like show my cards a little bit. I came with Ed Harris in mind, but I really liked your your spiel there, Emily. And now I'm going to go hop back up on the fence. I will say, though, while we have him in one of these movies, Kevin Bacon does not get enough love. Yeah, man. His performance in this film, I was like, man. And when I see him on screens, I'm like, when is he going to get his due? And I don't think he ever will. Totally with you. Kevin Bacon does not get as much love. He gets a lot of love in like a, a like quirky way, but not in like the, right, the- Lightning quick, then. What's your favorite Kevin Bacon performance? Sprout. Too slow. M. <laughs> Uh, I keep thinking about him in A Few Good Men. No, I'm going back to JFK. Oh, fuck yeah. You? Stir of Echoes. Okay. Um, All right. So anyway. Uh, Anyway, Tremors. Okay. The next person on the list is Brad Pitt, who played Jeffrey Goins in 12 Monkeys. Supposedly, director Terry Gilliam originally wanted Jeff Bridges to play the excitable Goins, and as much as I appreciate Bridges, Pitt's casting and ensuing performance were so right on, can't imagine anyone else in this role. Shooting for this movie took place in the first half of 1995. Interview with the Vampire and Legends of the Fall had only recently made Brad Pitt a burgeoning star and sex symbol, but the 31-year-old actor did everything he could to buck that public perception with his next two films, Seven and Twelve Monkeys. There's a movie, and I can't, it's on the tip of my tongue and it has been for months. There's a movie where a female character says something about how she'll always love Brad Pitt. And then one of her friends goes, even when he was all gross in Twelve Monkeys? And she's like, yes. I thought it was Clueless and then I looked it up and it wasn't. Then I thought it was Mean Girls and I looked it up and it wasn't. Did I make that up? No. No, it sounds like a Kevin Williamson line to me. Okay. Like Scream. I can't. I, can't place I know what it. you did last summer. Curse. Can't place it. No, no, it's gonna come to me. It's gonna the come faculty. to me. I feel like it's the Noxzema girl, Rebecca Gayhart, saying it. His performance is great, and I love the fact that he was. I think he still smokes cigarettes to this day, but he he refused to give himself cigarettes while on set, so he'd be extra twitchy and all this stuff. And, <laughs> you know, I love I love all of it, but I, I don't have much of an opinion on this. It, it just seemed like fun to just be like, I'm crazy. Yeah, and that's what. So I. Re- watched 12 monkeys for this episode i own the cardboard cutout from the movie theater and Mm -hmm. i hadn't seen it since the movie theater but uh wow like willis's character ebbs and flows for me stowe and pitt are probably the best thing about this movie madeline stowe who i miss man she fell off the radar but i totally remember her from this movie there was another movie i think with ray liotta called unlawful entry but pitt is a fun watch in this at points i had to wonder if he was just living his dream like if he was on set of cuckoo's nest but the subtle bearing of psychosis that he does when he goes from hospital scrubs to a suit to a, like, I mean, like a cat suit, a burglar's getup. It's, it's super well done. All points considered, I was thinking when we first brought up taking this away from Kevin Spacey that it was going to be a no brainer for me. I was going Brad Pitt. And then I rewatched the movie and I was like, but is he reusing some of the stuff that he is doing? Like, is he giving us anything new or is he just playing the same psychosis throughout the entire thing? And the only thing that I really like is when he goes subtle when it's in a suit. 
And then I had to also think, is he so subtle in his psychosis that people would follow him? Is he walking that fine line of like crazy or forward thinking where people are like, man, he's a little uncouth. He's a little unraveled, but I'm going to go with him because I believe in everything that he's doing. Because there was parts where I was like, man, no, that guy is, like you said, twitchy. He is all over the place. I don't know necessarily if people would follow him. So this is a great performance. I'm glad that it's nominated. I don't know if this is the one. How are you? Hello? Very attractive. Great escape, 1990. Watch it. Huh? the hospital? Yeah, am I right? I can't do anything about what you're going to do. I can't change anything. I won't stop you. I can't stop you. I just want the information. Come on, come on. Hi, lady. So nice to see you again. Remember to watch your step on the way down. Oh. All right, I'm glad. Brunt, Weller. I just want access to the pure virus. Virus? Yes, for the future. I need to know where it is and exactly what it is. Ah, I get it. I see what you're up to. It's your old plan, isn't it? What plan? Your plan? What you're talking about? What plan? Yes, you do. We were in the day room watching television, and you were all upset about the desecration of the planet, which I understand. But then you said to me, wouldn't it be great if there was a germ or a virus that would wipe out all of mankind and leave the animals and the trees? No, you're just trying to confuse me. It's all funny. And I told you my father was this famous virologist, and you said, hey, he can make a germ, and we can steal it. All right, go, go, go. The thing mutates. We live underground. The world belongs to the dogs and cats. We live like worms. We just need the information. You are total nutcase, completely deranged, delusional, paranoid. Your process is all fucked up. Your information trade is jammed, man. You know what it is, normally up to 12 months. I think it's fantastic. Rewatching this, it was like so much of it is so dated, and there was a lot of 90s nostalgia that sort of came up for me with it. But I enjoyed the hell out of this performance. And Spro, I think people would follow him because people regularly follow absolute psychopaths all the fucking time. So, like, Charles Manson had the drugs and he had the girls, and he had like so much more. Like, if we're just say Charles Manson, right? Like, he was living the hippie lifestyle. He had a beach boy in his back pocket. He was going to make it as a musician. Like all cult followers have like this certain like drug aspect. Like he wasn't drugging any of his people. Not every so. not every cult uh, following has a, a drug factor in it. And not every following of just a, the cult of personality has a drug factor in it. There's an X factor. There's a genesis qua. There's some sort of like attraction that people have to certain types of people or characters. And it's not necessarily about drugs. It is just about the things they say and something about them that people tend to follow them. And some of them have been and are absolute psychopaths that make no sense or may have certain things going on with them, tics, etc. And people will still follow them. Look, I mean, when the cults invite me, I ask what drugs are going to be there. That's all you I'm saying. You are not a good candidate for a cult. Why not? I totally cult the shit out of cult things. <laughs> 
this is a good thing. This oh. is a compliment I'm giving you. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start studying Scientology, though. I'm super excited for that to like delve in. That's Can you unpack not, that a little bit yeah, for that's me? Not, that's not funny. I, I'm not being funny. I like, find that funny. I read the Bible. I did like the Torah and the New Testament. Yeah. And now I'm on the Quran. And next year is going to be the Book of Mormon. And then the year after that, I'm diving into Scientology. See, this I'm all for. And, and it's stuff like this that you have done in your life that makes you a bad candidate candidate for cults. I, on the other hand, am highly suggestible and should stay <laughs> the fuck away. He also had, Goins had money too. I never watched, did either of you guys ever watch the 12 Monkeys TV show? Because I sure as fuck didn't. Oh no, not at all. Yeah, my guess is that might have been explored a little bit more. Goins came from money. So, you know, maybe he was buying them fucking, I don't know, mink coats. Do people still buy mink coats? I don't know. Maybe the allure was, hey, this guy's for animal rights just like we are, and he's got capital to back it. I feel like your quote is from Can't Hardly Wait. No, it's not. not. It's not Can't Hardly Wait. I know that shit backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. They're talking about Peter Facinelli in it, and she makes a Brad Pitt reference. I'm telling you, I searched. I searched. Jamie Presley saying it. Once you find evidence to that fact, you let me know. Okay. So Brad Pitt's still on the table. Okay. James Cromwell's off the table. Ed Harris is on the table, hitting the table and throwing glasses everywhere. Mr. Ed Harris. Ed, Hmm? you wanted to add anything? Not particularly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, you did do one. That's right. That. That. (laughs) No, because what is that? What is that? You know. What is that? What is what is it? What is violence? What is it? You know, that's what the movie's about. Ladies and gentlemen, on this note, uh, thank you very much for being here. <laughs> Which brings us to our final nominee, which is a strange one. Not that he is not worthy of an Oscar for many different things that he's done, but I don't know about this role. I'm talking about Tim Roth playing Cunningham in Rob Roy. I am not sold on this one. Cunningham is a nasty piece of work, guiltless, evil, violent, a very easily hateable villain. But since the stories of Rob Roy and McGregor have faded over time, the character of Cunningham was fabricated to give the hero a supervillain. Sometimes liberties must be taken. But that's why I'm not totally sold on it. Instead of striving for a complex bad guy, screenwriter Alan Sharp took the easy way making Cunningham a murderer, a philanderer, a rapist, and a snide prick. So consequently, the viewer is forced to endure this particularly traumatic rape scene just to get Cunningham some real heat. And while that may have historically been true to how the English treated peasants under their rule, I think it cheapens the character. And like I said, I like Roth, and I actually think he deserved a nomination this year, just not not for Best Supporting Actor and not for Rob Roy. I think he should have been up for Best Actor in a leading role for playing Ted the Bellhop in Four Rooms, personally. I can't disagree with anything you said right there, even down to the Four Rooms. I love Four Rooms, and he is, does a whole lot more in Four Rooms than he does in Rob Roy. The only thing I could disagree with, like, because you know how much I detest, <laughs> how I think most people other than rapists detest rape, but the rape scene in this one, like, you were like, watch out, it's coming, and, you know, just, I'm forewarning you, and I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. It, this one wasn't, I don't think we could put traumatic as a, I mean, it's definitely triggering. His menacing and this whole thing just feels playful. It's a weird, he doesn't even like seem like the bad guy. He seems like he's trying to be like the cool bad guy in this with a long brown 
wavy wig. I don't know. This isn't for me. I would take this one off the table. I didn't find much too appealing with this role. I'm totally fine taking this one off the table. Em? My favorite thing about Rob Roy is the duel. The duel is so well done. About like midway? No, no it's near the end. The end, the end duel between oh, the Rob, end duel. Rob Roy and yeah. Cunningham. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. That end duel is absolutely gorgeously done and it actually has a realistic feel to it and shows the actual um, danger of these weapons, which most duels are like, and this is like, fuck. Anyway, I can geek out over the duel portion of this. As much as one can enjoy a character like this, did enjoy the portrayal but yeah it's still it's still not my choice for for this one definitely uh i think deserve the nomination but not my choice for a win think of yourself as the scabbard and me the sword mistress mcgregor and the fine fit you were too i will think of you dead until my husband makes you so and then i will think on you no more Indeed. Such a man as he will need to see blood on his blade before honor is satisfied. Tell him Archibald Cunningham is at his service. Here's a question for you, since you talk with and hang out with like fight choreographers and everything like that. Mm-hmm. If there was an award, if somebody was like, that duel is like the greatest duel ever caught on screen, based on how the Academy Awards are devised right now with the 24 awards that they have, which one would an awesome fight choreography fall under? Would that be Direction? Oh, it needs its own thing. Like much like how the Emmys have like one for a stunt coordinator or stunt team. I think it should be stunt coordinator or stunt team. That would also encapsulate fights and fight choreography. Yeah, yeah. Because the fight, the fight choreographer comes in under the stunt coordinator. Good to know. Or I'm it's the stunt coordinator that is the one who choreographs the fights. But often they'll bring in someone who is specifically does the, the fight coordination or choreography. I'm hoping to get a stunt choreographer on the show for next season. So it would be a stunt coordinator or a fight coordinator or fight choreographer. This is why I like having Emily. I mean, one of the many reasons I like having Emily on because I'm sitting here like, fuck this movie, fuck this fucking role, fuck him, fuck all of them. And then she's like, calls attention to something where it's like, man, I don't even remember the fight. I was just so excited for the movie to be over. Go and go back and watch that duel again. I'm going to. I'm going to. Very rarely do you do you see a duel and say, I know how that weapon works now. And that is a duel that you're like, I know how that weapon works. That weapon cuts and that weapon hacks and you see it actually do it and you feel the danger of it. It's not just a like flashy sword fight. I had never seen this too. And the only thing about the duel that stood out was that Rob Roy wins. I was like, he's going to fucking die. I just assumed, you know, historical epic Spartacus Braveheart. But yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I will totally go back and look at it for you. Yeah. It's a good, well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's a good actual rapier fight. It's true, true to the weapon and also true to the story, which is, I cannot say for a lot of sword work that I see. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Well, those are all the nominees, bro, which means we need to move on to the the folks that did not even get a nomination, but had standout performances in 1995. And the first one we're going to talk about is Don Cheadle playing Mouse in Devil in a Blue Dress. Where'd you have your mouse? Huh? Where'd Joppy? Uh, he, he right there.
What happened? I had no time to be tying him up easy. What? Look, you just said don't shoot him, right? That's right. Well, I didn't. I just, I, I choked him. What? Well, how am I going to help you out if I'm, if I'm back here fooling around with him now? Easy, look, if you ain't want to kill, why'd you leave him with me? As much as we've already been on record professing our love for Denzel, I've never seen this movie. Denzel plays Ezekiel Rawlings, or Easy, a WW2 vet living in LA, proud of his house and his neighborhood, an honest earner, but due to the color of his skin, employers either won't hire him or are quick to fire him, regardless of his work ethic. As a result, Easy takes a snoop job from a friend of a friend, find a woman named Daphne Monet, and the story evolves from there. It's no Chinatown, but man, it was good. I was completely engaged. The look and the feel of 1940s LA, just rich, alluring, mysterious. The acting across the board works. We get a very fitting and moody score from the great Elmer Bernstein, alongside a lot of cool needle drops from the period. Tak Fujimoto's luscious photography, a script based on Walter Mosley's novel of the same name. In fact, Mosley has a series of books that feature easy. And I think if this had been more successful, we would have gotten to see a couple more of these. But the man that we are here to talk about for this portion is Don Cheadle, who at 31 years of age plays Mouse. Easy's seriously disturbed friend and ally, who joins the party about halfway through the film. For his performance, Cheadle was recognized by the LA Film Critics Association and National Society of Film Critics as Best Supporting Actor. There's one point in the film, Mouse murders someone that Easy has asked him to guard. And when Easy comes back and sees that Mouse has killed him, he flips out. And Mouse asks very simply, if you didn't want him killed, why'd you leave him with me? Mouse is considered Cheadle's breakthrough performance, despite having been in Colors and the TV series Picket Fences. But it was his performance here in Devil in a Blue Dress that apparently put him on Hollywood's radar. Like you, I had never seen this movie. And I saw it after you, after you were praising. You're like, man, Don Cheadle is a treasure. And I was like, well, yeah, I feel like we've known this. And really, I don't think I would have placed my first time seeing him in Boogie Nights. I think the first time was traffic and I wasn't really starting to pay attention until something like Crash came out. He never took off really for me or even Hollywood, I would say, until maybe 10 years after this movie and people started really memorizing the name. I didn't get it. Like when you were like Don Cheadle is a treasure and I started watching this movie and of course Denzel Washington, always a blessing to have on the screen. I like the time period as well. And then Don Cheadle shows up and I'm like, oh, there he is. I looking young, but still old, you know, like I don't think I've ever seen a young Don Cheadle, but it wasn't until we get to the scene in the kitchen and at the table and his, he's slowly fading out and everything like that, that I was like, oh yes, now I see what everybody saw. And this is one of those where there's a lot of unnominated this year that I was like, man, I would raise them up. There's not enough nominations to go around. I think I would give Don Cheadle the nomination, but maybe at the end of the episode, run through and be like, who can we fit in the top five? I can't believe neither of you had seen this movie until prepping for this podcast. I'm sorry. When did you see it? I don't even remember, like years ago. Because I, I doubt it came out in the Westlake Promenade, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I definitely watched it like on, on, a, on a television screen. The performances are excellent. And Don Cheadle's performance is excellent. I'm totally for having this be uh, a nomination, having him be a nomination. I think it was frankly overlooked to the Academy at that point. This movie was overlooked by a lot of people. I think the reason that we didn't get any more was, I'm sure 
Washington would have done more, but it just didn't. It didn't make buck. The academy's racist, and we live in a racist system. So just gonna oh, put that I out mean, there. And- the academy is getting better. It took quite a bit of yelling and prodding and and spotlights, but but every year they add new members, and I think they're actively trying to shed the very clear and empirical biases that they have had for so many years. Slowly, but yes. Remember the year that Halle Berry and Denzel won and they're like, it's the black year, but don't worry, we'll go back to red. <laughs> <laughs> My God. I just like the fact that everybody was like, why can't the Oscars be more like the Golden Globes? And then that fucking blew <laughs> like, up. <laughs> well, let's move on from Devil in a Blue Dress and Mr. Cheadle and talk about Mr. John Leguizamo. Yes. Okay. I'm excited too. <laughs> Who plays the adorable Chi-Chi in Tu Wang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. He's absolutely out of the question. Well, says you, you're not my mom's. I'm going and you can't stop me. Oh, darling, you most certainly will not be going out with Mr. Bobby Ray. Why not? Why not? We got a lot in common. Oh, yes. Like for starters, the same business in between your legs. Boink, 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 boink. And if he ever gets a whiff of your oh, wiles, darling. Oh, here we go. Here we go again. It's the why I'm always right and you're wrong song sung by her lonely breastesses herself. Let me ask you, Vita. What do you know about relationships, huh? I mean, who loves you, baby? Oh, be quiet, Chi-Chi. You're just deluding Nobody, yourself. Nobody. That's who. Not even your rich mommy and daddy. Okay? Oh, oh. I know what this is about. This is about jealousy. You're jealous because I'm going out with a cute boy tonight and you ain't. Hello, goodbye. You are deceiving that child. That boy does not know which end is up and you know for a fact that Miss Bobby Lee is in love with him. So what? So what if she is? Maybe I'm going to get a little something out of this, okay? What's wrong with that? This girl is dealing with some demons over there. And I will not allow you to play games with other people. There are human rules by which we operate, sweetheart. You know, I'm just so sick and tired of this freakazoid white lady telling the black lady and the Latin lady which way is up, down, and under because she's vanilla white superior. You can laugh all you want, but I hope you pack and fix that Cadillac because I'm staying, okay? You're staying, huh? Well, all right, Miss Jennifer Holiday. You go ahead and stay. <laughs> Don't forget to write. <laughs> oh, Noxie, she truly does have a pinata for her head. Don't go there, Vita. Well, she certainly is an oppressive gringa with a pinga. All right, y'all. And you are a puta Spanish fly. Don't go And you there. are an uptight, cellulite, dinosaur, fossil-faced, white, funky, crackled witch. Now you listen to me, you little sway-back third-world selfish, self-absorbed piece selfish. of Oh, my God, I'm selfish. You're the selfish one running into people's houses and bossing their lives around with them they even asking you, okay? Mrs. Dear Atlanta's painting my culo de... How dare you think that... What is that noise? You, you, you want to know what that noise is? Did you hear that? That's you running into everybody's house when you should be cleaning up your own Shut house. Up, Gigi. Shut up, Shut up, When I look at you, makes me want to throw up in your mother's wedding around the corner just to lick it up. Virgil's beating up Carol Ann. Most likely. Here's another one I never saw. What? Yeah, no, I didn't. No, I'm not letting Lee die on this cross alone. I also never saw this one until this episode. It made me shake and pee myself. I'm, I'm so just, disappointed in you. I'm just kidding. So it didn't make me. It didn't sh- make me shake and pee myself. But it just. I. I don't know. I just lumped it up with you know girl movies. <clears throat> the irony, which I don't watch very often. Yes, yes. 
not lost on anyone, I, I bet. It kind of reminded me of like Doc Hollywood with drag queens, but it also reminded most people of The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, an Australian film from 1994 with Guy Pearce and Terrence Stamp, which tells ostensibly the same story. A lot of people think Newmar was just an American remake of Priscilla, but apparently the former was already well into production when the latter was released. Either way, the film is, it's a bit pedestrian. But it's still a very nice fish out of water comedy. I would compare it to Babe. I'm gonna. What? What? I so here's wait 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 wait. Can you break down pedestrian for me? It doesn't exactly tell a story that I've never heard before. It does so with drag queens for sure, which makes it feel fresh, but it's very much stranger comes to town. Just so happens these strangers are dressed up like women and they have their supporters and they change everyone's lives. And the people whose lives they don't change who are bigoted pricks get, I don't know, a bucket of water dropped on them and everyone goes, yeah. Dude, every story is literally a story that you've heard before. (laughs) That's like, it's all just archetypes. And are you saying you've seen this transvestite story pre-1996 or in the 26 years since? Can you guys go fuck yourselves and just let me finish my thing and then you guys can make fun of me as much as you want? Well, no, I was going to cut it anyway to say that I think one of the things that turned me off from this from seeing this movie is the long ass title of Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. It reminds me of like the man that went up the hill and came down a mountain or whatever. Like long titles, I was like, fuck that. I don't want to do it. That's, That's how like, petty I was back in 1996. That is a very strange justification. I just didn't What's want the to- longest title movie that you enjoyed. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. No, there's got to be a longer one than that. Yeah, but that, that was just, it just felt so pretentious to me. It's like the longer it is, it just feels more pretentious. I don't like the movies now where it's like, it sounds like just like a snatch of dialogue. Like, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. It's like, oh, fuck, mm-hmm. <laughs> fuck yourself. <laughs> is that a, really a movie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back to my You're Googling. Right <laughs> That's good. That's a good. That's a good point. So I'm bringing this all up to talk about it with you because I want to talk about John Leguizamo, who, as I said, plays Chichi Rodriguez, an aspiring drag queen who finds herself under the tutelage of Vita and Nagzima. To be fair, by- she's a drag princess. <laughs> that's true. That's fair. Yeah, she finds herself under the tutelage of Vita and Nagzima, played by Swayze and Snipes, respectively. Anyone who loves movies should occasionally thank the cinema gods for a guy like Leguizamo. Even in bad films, he just treats his work like it's the most important thing in the world. I was just telling Spro earlier that in spite of the fact that M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening is really not good, I still will never forget the sequence when he is in the van and the girl is having like a panic attack and he gives her the math problem to try and take her mind off of her fear. And he's like, if I gave you a penny on the first day of a month and there were 30 days in the month and then I doubled it every day, how much money would you have? And, you know, she's freaking out and she's trying to figure it out and she guesses and she's way off. And he's like, you would have over $5 million or like $30 million. And as he's revealing the answer to the, the question, the math problem, he's his eyes are looking up at the top of the van and then it shows what he sees and it's the there's a slit in the cover of the of the jeep so he knows that the the plants are going to kill him and then they do so but anyway no no i i mean have you ever seen any of his his one person shows i was going to talk about it actually oh 
It, yeah. was, it was on HBO when I, we had HBO when I was a kid and not Mamba Mouth, but Spicorama was on HBO. Yeah. He, Did you ever see Freak? Yeah. I saw Freak. I have not yeah, seen Freak. Freak is probably the best and Spicorama is probably second. And then I put Mamba Mouth at third. One of my favorite people in the world, you guys both know him and he was a guest on the show, Rudy. Rudy and I would just watch John Leguizamo all the time in college because I think Rudy kind of emulated his acting style when he got on stage as BFA majors down at OU, OEA, Ohio University, the first and finest <laughs> University of Ohio. Um, <clears throat> Maybe he is suggestible and could be um, <laughs> You know, I start to, uh, maybe I take that back. <laughs> Let's just jump into the film and John Leguizamo's performance in it. If you haven't seen this film, dear listeners, go check it out because it will just put a smile on your face the whole way through. If we're going to do best cameo in the future, a best cameo episode, Robin Williams sliding into the booth in this film for like three minutes Puts a smile on my face, even like looking back and thinking about it. The fact that Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes and those two alone pretty much are at like the pinnacle of their tough guy careers. And the fact that they agreed to do these roles in a, you know, not as open minded atmosphere that was it also is very cool. But the thing about John Leguizamo is that he is the one in this film that is unrecognizable. Even with what we know of John Leguizamo now, even the fact that I pretty much studied him with Rudy in college, I'm watching Tu Wong Fu and I can't find where the character begins and he ends. And what's cool about this, or at least the history of the movie, is that Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes both actually fought to play these roles back when when it was first offered up. And there's actually been a few viral things that have come out recently about just like social media posts that have come out about this, about how, and John Leguizamo has even come out and said, you know, this would never fly in 2022 as far as us portraying these characters. But it was such an important part of our careers. It was such an important roles that we all took on and we took it very seriously. You recently were in my neck of the woods, Emily, and you and I were talking and I tried to drop knowledge on you and you're like, yeah, I know that. But I <laughs> maybe the listeners don't know, but apparently the director, Beban Kadron, said no to Patrick Swayze. And as you said, he and Wesley Snipes both fought for these roles. And it wasn't until, God, I can't even remember the piece of trivia now. Did he see him dance or did he see him in a dress like walking? And then he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And Patrick Swayze's whole like background is so fascinating because he, he grew up as a dancer. His his mom was a professional dancer and he grew up dancing in her troupe and like ended up going to in, in Texas. And so it was also, you know, very very much walk this line of our traditional ideas of both masculine and feminine, uh, as far as just the ways that he physically expressed himself of like working a lot of yeah, I totally was at the gym. And there was a special on Patrick Swayze. I'm sorry, it just happened. But it is is it's quite fascinating, you know, and he actually started to get into film and television after his dance career he knew was so limited because dancers, you know, burn out so quickly and get injured so quickly. Yeah, I think my favorite favorite part of the movie. There's a lot of great parts. Well, first of all, before I get to that, can we also say how nice it is to see Stocker Channing in anything? Oh, yes. I mean, a lot of people talking about Grease lately. I listened to one podcast that had a Grease special and they talked about John Travolta, or as my father would call him, John Revolta for about 25 <laughs> minutes. And then they gave about five minutes to Olivia Newton-John. And 
barely even mentioned Stalker Channing. Oh. I think she's the best thing about Grease. If I ever watch Grease, it's not for either of the leads or the songs, but for Stockard. She's one of the best things about Grease. I kind of envy you because you don't watch TV and whatnot, but if you ever wanted to watch The West Wing for the first time, she does a wonderful first lady. You've never seen The West Wing? I swear to God, if one more person on this show today goes, you've never seen (laughs) insert name of show or movie, I'm going to (laughs) fucking... But okay, to be fair, to be fair. I'm going to go, what is violence? (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I hadn't seen West Wing until we were in a pandemic and I had a newborn. And so my 4 a.m. shift that started at four to relieve my significant other of his shift was me with our baby Finn watching the West Wing. I wish I'd watched the West Wing instead of Tiger King, quite honestly. You, you, you need I'll a few never, more hours in your in your day. I'll <laughs> never. Oh, yeah, that's true. I dated a girl in high school whose dad loved that show, and her dad was a colossal prick. So I just assumed that the show was for colossal pricks. But that's my own prejudice and hang up. I'll get past that. And um, right, you got it. You got to you got to drop that one and just just hop on board. Just yeah, hop on yeah board. you're like you're like forty now. Uh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Hey, Lee can hold a, he can hold a grudge with the best of them. <laughs> I don't feel as though I can. That's not a grudge. That's just, I made a judgment call back then. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and your first impressions, <laughs> you can yeah, hold a first impression with the best of them. My favorite thing that Leguizamo does, in fact, the part that made me laugh in this movie the most is, I don't remember who they're hiding from, but all three leads run into the into the room that they have uh, redecorated where they're staying on, on the farmhouse. They run in and hide and you can't see, like somebody pops their head in to look for them and they're like, well, they're not here. And then they close the door <laughs> And Leguizamo's hanging on the back of the door. It's just like a little imp or something. I don't know. I thought that was great. When did the birdcage come out? God, that was awesome. I saw that one in theaters. Wow, that was so good. That still holds up. Still holds way up. Nobody bats an eye now with transvesti, you know, anything cross-dressing. Where I remember in the theater with the birdcage and Gene Hackman coming out in a dress at the end and being like, bro, wear a dress. So like this, the year after Tu Wong Fu. Well, what's so fucking, I'm not even going to get into it, but what's so depressing is that the current rhetoric, political rhetoric is suddenly like pushing us back to like closeting people and you can't, you know, the whole can't say gay thing. And it's I was going like, to say that when you were bringing it, because it's like the two surviving leads are like, this could never happen in 2022. It's like, that's backwards. Oh, well, what they were talking about is if it was going to be, w- oh, would these right, be right, trans, right. Yes, actors. trans okay. women that would be doing this or, or, you know, would this be specific to folks that do work in drag and do this as a lifestyle? You know, like there, there was more questions on that. I got then, that the minute it came out of my mouth. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's your thoughts on that? I think I would go back to the creators of it. I think I'd go back to the writers and the creators and be like, what was your intention for these characters? Who are these characters? And then finding the appropriate representation for those characters. Because people who are who do drag aren't necessarily and often aren't trans, right? Trans masculine, trans feminine. Some are just performers, some are are, you know, it's more what's the story you're trying to tell and then making sure you have the appropriate representation for it. Just real quick before we move on, Stranger Things, right? Do you guys, well, not Lee, but uh, I watched, Emily. I watched Stranger Things. 
Do you? That's TV. I don't avoid all television. The guy in Stranger Things that plays Steve seems like a complete rehash of Jason London. Didn't realize it until I rewatched Tu Wong Fu and I was like, oh my gosh, the guy from Mallrats and this film is obviously reinvented for Stranger Things. I was like, uh, who is this guy? Why do I know this person? Wait a minute. There's Jason and Jeremy. I think Jeremy's in Mallrats. I think Jason's in Dazed and Confused. Are they like... They're twin brothers. Yeah, they're twin Ah! brothers. Oh, Um, then who cares? They're one person. But (laughs) I think it's un. I think it's actually not how that works. (laughs) I think twins aren't one person. I thought one just came out of the mirror, walked around. The kid that plays Steve Harrington is so much more charismatic and likable than either of the London brothers. I was gonna speak on Dennis Farina. And yep. I was going to speak on Vincent Cassell, and I think we can just drop them into, unless either one of you wants to. Yeah, no, I, think- I didn't I didn't rewatch Get Shorty, and I didn't even look up La Haine. Oh, my. You need to watch La Haine. Yeah, you would dig that. Let me throw that up. Yeah. Like, even if you watch the first five minutes, you'll be like, wait, this was made in 96 or 2022. Wow, really? Yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. It's pretty good. Um, okay. But maybe since you have nothing to add, we can just mention it in passing. So Vincent Cassell, Dennis Farina, and Kevin Bacon are our honorable mentions. Unless somebody's got another one they wanted to throw. Oh, yeah. Um, Othello. Kenneth Branagh. Uh, yeah, he's kind of do, a wiener face. Do people like Kenneth Branagh? Oh, no. He's, he's, he's distinctly unlikable. <laughs> <laughs> but... But he's extremely talented. Okay, but did you see Belfast? No. Belfast is not talent. Like well, Belfast is he made, his made bones, on a studio lot. He made his bones already, so that was that was like all the egotistical male. But they're just throwing it's, awards at him. It's our well, yeah. Listen, he gave us Thor, okay? He gave us Thor. Yeah, and he I didn't I do not accept Thor. So what? if that was a if that was a gift, he can give it back. What? Just, you don't accept Thor? Are you talking about the first Thor? Yeah. Nobody, nobody likes either one of the first yeah. two Thors. Oh my god, no, they like Or they, the fourth. They nailed the the like that was the setup for like this is a ridiculous series that you don't have to take terribly seriously, but is actually fun. He gave us the the his best performance and best work, in my opinion, is playing the professor of dark arts in Chamber of Secrets. Brilliant. Oh yeah, yeah, no, he's really great. He's really great. Yeah, like the arrogant asshole who ends up being a complete liar and has never done any of the things that he claims to have done. Gilderoy right. Lockhart. Gilderoy Lockhart. There you go. No, uh, it's uh, a Midwinter's Tale, the 1995 movie a winter's tale that is the greatest gift that he's given us i've never seen it i'll check it out (laughs) you totally should it's just like a valentine to the theater and it's about him taking on the role of hamlet in a or or not him it's it he directs it and and wrote it and it's about a uh this dude who takes on hamlet in this small theater company and it's just hilarious and ridiculous and yeah i think you both would enjoy the hell out of it it's Did Spinal you? Tap. It's Spinal Tap, but like Shakespeare. Huh. Oh, no. Is it a mockumentary? I'm so fucking sick of those. It's not. No, it's not like a mockumentary. Okay, good. Rabbit Proof Fence is also a good one, but I couldn't give two shits about Othello. So before we adjudicate who the true recipient of the Best Supporting Actor of 1996 Oscar is... Just a few honorable mentions, starting with Dennis Farina, who plays Ray Bones Barboni in Get Shorty. I miss him very much. 
and seeing him on screen is always a treat. Another honorable mention is Vincent Cassell in La Haine. Just an absolutely fantastic movie that if you have never gotten around to, please seek out a copy of it, preferably the Criterion. And finally, a man that we mentioned earlier this episode, Kevin Bacon, for his role in Murder in the First, which is not a very good movie, but he's very, he's very good in it. Okay. <laughs> Those are the honorable mentions. So let's all locate our hearts and minds and figure out with whom they truly lie. Emily, would you like to lead the way or would you sure. prefer? Okay. <laughs> She's like, get the, just go, fucking shit. <laughs> like, my kid's going to wake up any minute now. <laughs> my top three? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Don Cheadle, Devil in, in a Blue Dress. John Leguizamo to Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything. Brad Pitt, Curveball. 12 Monkeys. It's bro. Number one is Leguizamo. Number two, Ed Harris. Number three, Brad Pitt. That's my exact same list. So if we're going to go on points with our top three lists, we have a tie at the top between John Leguizamo and Ed Harris. But because Ed Harris doesn't appear on all three lists, I would say the tiebreaker goes to John Leguizamo. Oh, no, it isn't. Right now, I could be in a comfortable climate controlled environment on a transcontinental airline, enjoying my individual package of peanuts and my little complimentary warm towel. If it wasn't for what? What? The little Hispanic riffitart. I didn't ask to come on this trip, did I? No, I don't think so. Did I ask you to be making me over and jump all kinds of hoops like some circus poodle? No, I don't think so. And do I want to go to jail because of some cop killer? No, I don't think so. So as soon as we get to the next town, I'm jumping on the first man and I'm riding him all the way to New York City and away from you two pocket up stuck up putas because this trip sucks. It sucks. After all we have done to include you, you would leave us so quickly? Like that. His performance is the one, and like, despite the fact that I said that the film is, it's, it's pedestrian. A bit, it is a bit pedestrian. It's very, <laughs> it's got a very feel goody, like, yay. And it's like, no, nah, so like probably babe? not. Right. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. He's fantastic in a okay movie. So we're eliminating Kevin Spacey from even the nomination board. We have James Cromwell, Ed Harris, Brad Pitt, Tim Roth. We want to throw up Cheadle on there, right? Who else would we take out if we're giving it to Leguizamo? I would take out Tim Roth. Me too. But I don't want to do that to our guest because she liked him so much. Or like the duel. I like the duel. That's right. The duel. (laughs) I like the duel. That's fine. You've lost all your fight, Emily. <laughs> That's absolutely not true. <laughs> I showed up with Brad Pitt and Ed Harris as my like top two picks. And I love the fact that after all conversation, it was John Leguizamo for me. And I showed up not really even knowing. I've been planning for this episode longer than any of the other episodes. And I was fairly certain three, four months ago that I was going to give it to Ed Harris. And my fervor has has dwindled. For that, I was so. actually fairly certain that Ed Harris was going to be my choice too. And then I started rewatching and I was like, oh, space movies are ruined for me. What's the name of that show again? For All Mankind. Okay. I only started watching it because Casey was watching it and said how much he loved it. And an actor I worked with named Chris Bauer is in it. And I was like, all right, I'll watch it because I'd die for Chris Bauer. And I'm fine with that. Really good. I'll put it on my list of West Wing and Mad Men and all those like... Skip Mad Men. Okay, good. I'll skip Mad Men. It does have Elizabeth Moss, though, and I like her very much. Yeah, catch the first season and then call it on that. Okay. I like the sounds of that. (laughs) I really like January Jones. All right. Well, 
Kevin Spacey, eat shit and die. We're taking your other Oscar away, but please feel free and make more train wreck YouTube videos and really hoping to see another one of those. Either oh my this, God, no, we don't, no one needs that. Kevin Spacey no longer has any Oscars and the world is a better place. John Leguizamo, enjoy that Oscar. You earned it. Your role in Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar, is one of many different roles that you probably deserved an Oscar or an Oscar nomination for. 100%. Well, that does it for another episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. We'd like to thank you, Emily, for coming back again. We love having you. My pleasure. Do you want to go after Woody Allen next year? Yeah, sure. Okay. So while we have you on the air, I think you need to promise our listeners... That you'll come back next season for one episode, maybe two. Promise everyone right now. Jesus. Okay. God. Okay. Let's <laughs> let's let Emily go. She's her child's going to wake up, and she has just used all of her free time today to waste an afternoon with us. So no, it was lovely. It was my pleasure, guys. Well, you promised, so you have to come back for at least one episode. Please. I will. All right, I'm in. You pay for childcare. <laughs> okay, I got no problem. We got a huge budget on this show. <laughs> this is right. Until next time, I am Lee. I'm Spro. I'm Em. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. I love Emily. Having her on the show reminds me of the old days. And thankfully, Hollywood's lousy with creeps, so we could definitely keep having her back. Thankfully, we can have her back, or thankfully, mm-hmm. LA is crawling with sex offenders. Lee, don't be stupid. I'm not being stupid. I'm serious. In that sentence, thankfully, was used to modify the phrase Hollywood's lousy with creeps, but not the second clause about Emily coming back on the show. Jesus Christ, 4.0 GPA, English masters. It's what? irony. Irony, Lee. Okay, explain iron. Do I look like fucking Alanis Morissette to you? I didn't mean that it's something we should be thankful for, okay? So you're not thankful we can have Emily back? The, Jesus Christ. What? what? Okay, sorry. I can tell you're angry, but I do need you later to tell me what you're talking about. All right, what's next? All right, then definitely someday. We'll be back on November 21st for a second helping of the Streep effect. So we're not calling it Gone Streepin' or Going Streepin'? Uh, we could call it that if you want. Nah, let's stick with the Streep effect. Yeah, I mean, like a little nickname of Going Streepin'. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, in the meantime, listeners, please help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you know, if you could make those reviews mostly positive, we'd love you forever. And if you're an Insta kid, you can jump on and follow at Take on the Academy for updates and lots of cool cinema posts. Or if you'd like to email, you can send those to Take on the Academy at G. Email.com. Next time, November 21st, more Spro, more Lee, more Streepin'. Please join us. <laughs> I told you I was getting tired. <laughs> Where can they join us? Um, on Spotify. Fucking front row. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we keep that. <laughs> um, so just put your line and then just tack it. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, mm. We hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. Sorry. <laughs>